In a Washington Post article, James Glassman warns of the dangers of dihydrogen monoxide as an unrecognized killer. This chemical compound, dihydrogen monoxide, or DHMO, has been implicated in the deaths of thousands of Americans every year, mainly through accidental ingestion. In gaseous forms, it can cause severe burns. And according to a new report, the dangers of this chemical do not end there. This chemical is so caustic that it accelerates the corrosion and rusting of many metals. And this chemical is a major component of acid rain and has been found in excised tumors of terminal cancer patients. Symptoms of ingestion include excessive sweating and urination. And for those who have developed a dependency on DHMO, complete withdrawal means certain death. Yet the presence of this chemical has been confirmed in every river, stream, lake, and reservoir in America, and in fact around the world. Judging from these facts, do you think that dihydrogen monoxide should be banned? Seems like an open and shut case. Such a dangerous chemical needs to be banned worldwide, right? Until you realize that this chemical compound is just plain old water. Two hydrogen molecules bounded by one oxygen molecule, or H2O. Water can drown you, water can scald you, and it can make you go to the bathroom. Nathan Zoner, an enterprising 14-year-old student at Eagle Rock Junior High School in Idaho Falls, Idaho, conducted a science fair project on Justice Theme. You see, Nathan distributed a tongue-in-cheek report that had been kicking around the internet, dihydrogen monoxide, the unrecognized killer, to 50 of his classmates. Now, these are smart kids who had studied chemistry. Many of them, like Nathan, had parents who worked in the nearby Idaho Nuclear Engineering and Environmental Laboratory. Nathan simply asked them to read the report, which is completely factual, and decide what, if anything, to do about this chemical. They could even ask the teacher what DHMO was, but none did. In the end, 43 students, or 86% of the sample, voted to ban dihydrogen monoxide because it caused too many deaths, wrote Nathan in the conclusion to his project, adding that he was appalled that my peers were so easily misled. Glassman writes, it's not just kids I worry about. Nathan's project, which won the grand prize at the Greater Idaho Falls Science Fair, was titled, How Gullible Are We? But ninth graders aren't the only gullible parties. I'm sure that if Nathan tried the same experiment on adults, he'd find at least as many would want to ban DHMO or want to ban water. The implications of Nathan's research are so disturbing that Glassman decided to coin a term, zonerism, defined as the use of a true fact to lead a scientifically and mathematically ignorant public to a false conclusion. That's why he writes, in a land where technical ignorance reigns and susceptibility to zonerism is high, it is the duty of politicians, journalists, and scientists to present facts responsibly and in context. After all, think what would happen if the Environmental Protection Agency really did ban dihydrogen monoxide or plain old water. In the same way, zonerism can work its way into spiritual things through the use of the true facts in the Scripture to lead a biblically ignorant and a theologically ignorant public to a false conclusion. That's why this may be the most important message in our sermon series, The Search for Truth, as we talk specifically about the application of truth. Because while truth applied in the wrong way or not applied at all doesn't change the truth itself, 
It can have deadly or even eternal consequences. You see, my friends, finding and discerning truth is only part of the search for truth. Once known, the truth has to be believed, implemented, and properly applied, or else it's simply head knowledge. For example, let's say you live on the 10th floor of a condominium, and you hear that a fire is broken out on the 11th floor of that building. To confirm the news, you phone the building manager who confirms the news. There is a fire one story above yours. You hear the sirens of the fire trucks racing to your building, and you see them parked outside, and the firefighters come out. And you see the flames from one story above you, from your balcony, and you can smell the smoke making its way into your floor. And then you hear a knock on your door and people yelling for you to make your way out and downstairs. And when you open your door, you see people on your floor heading to the emergency stairwell to go down. You have established through evidence and through firsthand research the truth that there is a fire one floor above you in your building. It would be foolish for you to then just close your door, crank up the volume on your smart television, and continue to watch the riveting Netflix show that you are watching. Sad as it may be, many of us may know the truth, but simply do not apply it in our lives. What then is the point of your search for truth if you don't like what the truth reveals and its implications? And so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22, as we learn some biblical principles that relate to the application of truth through the interaction of Jesus with a young man. I read now Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The Bible tells us that a man approaches Jesus and asks him a very important question. The gospel writer Luke tells us that this man is a ruler, perhaps a Jewish prince, definitely someone of prominence. And we will find out later that this man is both young and very wealthy. And his question is this, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now notice how this question is structured. He does not ask what needs to happen for him to have eternal life, but he asks what good things he should do to get eternal life to be assured of eternal life. This rich young ruler seems to believe that eternal life can be obtained by simply doing a good act or a series of good works. Simply put, he believes that there was a performance-based, merit-based system to gain eternal life, to be assured of eternal life. You see, this is a natural question for a man in his position and life experience to ask, as it is a question that we naturally ask as well, Because in life, we have a notion that there is a price for everything, perhaps even including eternal life. Everything is within your grasp, the secular worldview promotes, as long as one has enough money or resources to pay for it or to buy it. So you can buy a car, a house, a spouse, friends, and even influence and prestige. You can buy a town. You can buy entire islands. You can even buy an election and a political position. In some cases, you can even buy love and use money to craft a good reputation or buy yourself a good PR. But there is one thing that cannot be bought, and that is salvation and eternal life. But this rich young ruler, in all sincerity and genuineness of heart, asked Jesus how it can be bought. How does he have to perform? What good things can he do or continue to do to get what he so desires, eternal life? 
and the assurance of eternal life. This question and his mindset or presupposition are important to keep in mind to help us understand Jesus' unique reply to him. Now look at me at the first part of verse 17. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. Here in Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler's question in the first part of verse 17, Jesus begins by establishing the truth that no one is good but God. You see, in the previous verse, the man had addressed Jesus as good teacher, implying that perhaps somehow he saw Jesus as a man who was morally good and righteous, someone to be admired and respected, someone who could possibly answer his questions. But to this man, perhaps Jesus was only a teacher, a teacher of good morals, but no proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah or recognition that He is the promised Savior. Perhaps this man knew of Jesus' miracles and had heard enough of His messages to know that maybe Jesus could lead him to know how to be assured of eternal life, because perhaps he thought that was the only thing he was missing in life. He had wealth, he had prominence, and he had advantage of youth, and now he just needed salvation and the assurance of eternal life. But this man had an improper understanding of goodness, which needs to be corrected, and Jesus used how the man addressed him as good teacher to make this correction. You see, the subjective human standard of good and bad is something that Jesus wanted to correct in this man's mind. And it is something that often needs to be corrected in our minds as well, because we often do the same when we assess people. We assess them as a good person or a bad person simply based on how we subjectively measure their actions from our own observations of them or what we hear about them from others. If their good actions outweigh their bad actions or we only see their good actions, then our evaluation of that person is that they are, quote-unquote, good. But this ambiguous and subjective assessment of good and bad is not very accurate because it's really difficult to gauge the true nature of a person as we can't see their true intentions, know their thought life, or even perceive what they're thinking in their hearts. Someone who does good can have very bad intentions. Someone who is kind and nice to you may want to lure you into their world and harm you or take advantage of you. So Jesus wanted to take away this moral ambiguity from this man's thinking about goodness by stating very clearly that no one is good but God. Now, some have used this verse to say that Jesus, therefore, is not God or that He is not sinless. Jesus is not saying these things. He's not implying that He is not God, and He's not implying or suggesting that He has sinned. Please understand this important point. Because this man may not even recognize that Jesus is God, Jesus is simply trying to correct the wrong thinking of this man to help him answer his question in verse 16. When Jesus says that only God is good, Jesus is defining the standard of goodness required to gain eternal life as the same standard of the goodness of God. This means that the standard of goodness that gains salvation and entry into heaven and into eternal life is the perfect holiness of God. And of course, the immediate implication and the natural conclusion is that no one is able to meet this standard of goodness because no one is perfectly holy as God is, nor even comes close, even with all the good works that one may do. 
You see, my friends, it doesn't matter how you assess yourself or others as being, quote-unquote, good enough to be deserving of heaven. You and I will not be able to gain entry into heaven unless we are perfect and have never sinned. Just think about someone in your life whom you believe to be the most pious, virtuous, righteous person. And if I were to ask you if you believe that that person deserves to go to heaven or not, what would your answer be? I'm sure most of you would say, absolutely, because that's the most holy person I know. But the Bible's answer is a resounding no, because it doesn't matter how pious or angelic you or someone else are. We all have sinned. We've all made a mistake. We've all not lived up to the standard of God's holiness. And that right there makes us ineligible for eternal life. This is why Jesus told the man, No one is good except God. And by establishing this fact, Jesus was defining that the goodness required to gain eternal life is unattainable through good works and pious living because the standard of goodness is God's standard of holiness, which is pure holiness. You see, my friends, we can draw out our first principle for applying truth, and it is this, number one. Clearly define terms and concepts in order to apply truth correctly. Clearly define terms and concepts in order to apply truth correctly. This means that when you hear truth and are led to apply that truth in your life, make sure that you have a precise definition of the terms being used, as well as having a clear understanding of the conceptual framework being used. Now, let me illustrate this. If someone says, I believe in Jesus, you may assume that he believes and follows the same Jesus you do. But what if for him, Jesus is the name of his dog or a cat or a statue or an idol? What if for him, Jesus refers to a Jesus that is not fully divine, but only a man like many of the cults hold Jesus to be? That's why when we talk about Jesus, we need to make sure the Jesus we believe in We need to make sure that the terms are clearly defined. What do you believe about this whom you call Jesus? When someone says Jesus is the Savior, does that mean that Jesus saves everyone on this planet or that He only saves those who put their trust in Him, as the Bible says? We have to be precise in the conceptual framework. So if someone advocates for us to follow Jesus, Do they advocate for us to do so because Jesus was a good man and a great teacher and following His moral teachings is good enough to save us? Or do they advocate for what the Bible teaches, that we are to follow Jesus as His disciples because of what He did on the cross for us when He saved us? Or if someone says, I'm a Christian, what does that mean? Do you ask them to define what it means for them to be a Christian? Because today many people say that they are Christians but they say that simply because they think they go to church and therefore are Christians, or they grew up in a Christian home, but they've never made a profession of faith in Jesus. You see, my friends, terms and concepts need to be clearly and precisely defined before you apply those truths in your life. And the reason I make such a big deal about all of this is because often when people apply truth, they make big assumptions about how terms and concepts are used without first seeking clarification. And those assumptions may lead you to apply truth incorrectly. 
For example, we have a family group chat on the messaging platform that each of us are on and use. Before a meal, my wife will type the words, it's time to eat, instead of yelling and calling on us individually. But conflict arose from this because we all had a different understanding of what is meant by the phrase, it's time to eat. For me, my thought is that when Cindy writes those words, that I'll leave my office and make a short walk to the dining table where I'll find that everyone has already washed up and is already seated in their places, and the food and the utensils have already been set, and we can immediately begin to eat the meal when I arrive. But in Cindy's mind, when she writes the word, it's time to eat, that means it's time for everyone to wash up, use the bathroom, and to come and help her set up the dining table, pour drinks in the various cups, and it means the start of the preparation for mealtime. For the kids, when they read the message, it's time to eat. It usually means they have a buffer time of 20 to 30 minutes to finish up what they're doing, as it will take time for dad to make it from the office to the dining table and for mom to finish meal preparations. As you can see, while the message is the same, there are three different expectations as to what it means when the words, it's time to eat, are written. And that's when conflicts and fights arise as mom is angry, no one is there to help her. I'm angry because when I make it to the table after a long day of work, nothing is prepared. And the kids are upset because we got mad at them for having to call them several times to come out and eat. This misunderstanding had to be corrected to make sure that the truth of the message is properly applied to all. As to which interpretation we use now? Of course, mom's definition of the phrase, it's time to eat. And that's the one we go with, or else mom isn't happy, and then we will starve as a family. So remember, define clearly terms and concepts in order to apply truth correctly. Now, going back to our story, this is what Jesus does when He defines for the rich young ruler what goodness means as it relates to gaining eternal life, to make sure there is the same understanding. Now, let me read the second part of verse 17 to verse 19. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, since this man thinks that eternal life can be achieved by doing good, Jesus says you can try to keep the commandments, but you have to keep the commandments perfectly. Now, listen very carefully. Let me be very clear. Jesus is not teaching that eternal life can be achieved through the obedience of the law and in doing good by following certain commands through His unique answer. For the record, the Bible is very clear. Salvation and eternal life come through faith in Jesus Christ, not through works or obeying commandments, nor in doing good. And the Bible does not contradict itself, as all the books are inspired by the same one God. Look with me at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans 3, 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And then in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, 
even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So as you can see, the Bible is very clear. Salvation and eternal life comes by faith, not by works. Jesus answers this man's question in this way in order to get the rich young ruler to recognize an important truth a bit later. The young man in verse 18 asked Jesus which commands he needs to keep in order to gain eternal life, to which Jesus answers with six commands. Interestingly, these six commandments seem to be very achievable, even for us today, if we were intentionally trying to live out a good life in order to get to heaven, and if we define a good person as one who deserves heaven when he does these good things. You see, I've often heard people say, I'm a good person. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've always honored my parents. And truthfully, they have kept those commandments. Is that good enough to get them to heaven? And the answer is no. After this list given by Jesus, look at verse 20 to see how this young man reacts. I read Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. The young man said to Jesus, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? You see, the rich young ruler said, I've done all of these things. Even from my youth, I've kept these commandments. The implication is that I'm good enough to gain eternal life if this is the list, if this is all that is required and to make sure there wasn't anything else so that he can be assured of his eternal life. This man asked Jesus, what do I still lack? In other words, Jesus, anything else? I just want to be sure. You can see that this young man was sincere and genuinely trying to live out a good moral life. He was obviously religious in following the Jewish laws as he tried to pursue righteousness through works. But these Jewish laws were never intended to save but to teach what a right relationship with God looked like for the Jewish nation. But the problem was that through his answer, this young man considered himself, quote-unquote, good enough to gain eternal life. In fact, even perfect through his adherence to these commands listed by Jesus. But Jesus is about to drop a bombshell truth on him that will rock his world. Jesus is about to challenge his concept of, quote-unquote, good enough. Here we can draw out another principle as it relates to the application of truth, and that is number two. Truth wrongly applied, however sincere, is truth unapplied. Truth wrongly applied, however sincere, is truth unapplied. Let me give you an example. If someone suggests to you that the best way to treat your acid reflux is to jump rope for 30 minutes because jumping rope is good for everyone, including yourself, and also so that the acid will go back down your esophagus and back into your stomach, they may be very sincere in giving you that advice, but they would be sincerely wrong. Because the truth of the matter is that while jumping rope is a good exercise for everyone, for those with acid reflux, the doctor says, this high-intensity workout may actually make heartburn worse. Because as you gulp down air during your high-impact exercise, it may also relax the lower esophageal sphincter, which can force acid into the esophagus. You see, truth wrongly applied, however sincere, 
is truth unapplied. If someone advocates for good works as a means of salvation because good works is in fact good, and the Bible does talk about showing forth good to others, they can be sincere in their advice, but if applied incorrectly as such, those who adhere to it will end up in hell, however sincere and kind and good they are. Here is a rich young ruler who sincerely believes now that he is good enough to go to heaven and obtain eternal life. But sincerity doesn't cut it. My friends, listen carefully. One can sincerely believe in the wrong thing, and they would still be wrong. Sometimes it's honestly embarrassing when people tell me that people of other religions do more good works than you Christians. In fact, they'll say that people of other religions, from their perspective, seem to quarrel less. They're more devoted. They are kinder. They're happier. They live more harmoniously with their spouse or more harmoniously with people in their community. Of course, this is their perception, but there may be truth in their perception depending on their own personal experience. However, while not an excuse for Christians to not live up to the standards of the Scriptures as Christ's followers, we know that salvation will only come to those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. While there are others who may be more devoted and sacrificially more pious to their gods or to be more sincere in doing good things in order to gain entry into heaven, they would be sincerely wrong as it relates to the truth of gaining eternal life. Again, truth wrongly applied, however sincere, is truth unapplied. I read now verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, here at verse 21, Jesus tells the rich young man that if he wants to achieve the perfection of goodness that allows entry into heaven, he is to go sell everything he has and give it to those in need and then follow him. Jesus also gives him assurance that when he does this, he will have treasure in heaven, which is akin to Jesus saying that you will have the assurance of salvation and eternal life that you're looking for. Remember, this is the question the man asked Jesus at the very beginning. Now, it may seem very odd that Jesus is asking this man to do these things as a means of salvation. Again, is Jesus teaching a good works salvation? The answer is absolutely not. You see, contextually, Jesus was asking this rich young ruler if he can fulfill two commandments in which Jesus grouped all the commandments. Remember Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40? Matthew chapter 22 verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, when Jesus asked this man to sell all that he had, Jesus was testing if this rich young ruler really loved God with all of his heart. 
because the act of selling all of his possessions would show through action if he really did love God above all things. And when he was to give all of the proceeds from the sale of his possessions to the poor, this would be his obedience to the second commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. As we will see in a bit, this is something that this rich young ruler found very difficult to do and therefore was not able to fulfill all the commandments perfectly and subsequently was unable to obtain eternal life through his good works. Because while he had fulfilled some, he couldn't perfectly fulfill all. And therefore this man doesn't have the perfection required to enter into heaven which he thought he had. The call to give up all and follow Jesus by faith was a very difficult prospect for such a rich man. He really wasn't willing to give it all up. But Jesus' answer in verse 21 illustrates that oftentimes truth applied may require great sacrifice. You see, my friends, this is our third principle in the application of truth, number three. The application of truth may require hard and difficult sacrifices. The application of truth may require hard and difficult sacrifices. Truth is truth, and the truth applied is often not easy, it is not convenient, it is difficult to apply, and it requires a sacrifice on our part. And since it requires a sacrifice, it is not one we are willing to make. And so we don't like when things are inconvenient for us. We like something called a convenient truth. And that's why there's a term today called convenient truth. Let me illustrate this. Probably one of the greatest barriers to positive change is convenience. For example, we all know that cars contribute significantly to pollution, obesity, and greenhouse gases. However, most of us own at least one car, and many of us own more than one. Why? Because cars are extremely convenient. Those who live car-free can attest to how inconvenient it is not to own a car, especially during the rainy season or in the hot summertime. Or drugs, as in pharmaceuticals, are also very convenient. It's easy to take antibiotics just in case. Pain relief is only a tablet away. As a result, we are so overprescribed that antibiotic resistance is one of the biggest threats to global health food security, and development today, according to the World Health Organization. And one of the most convenient forms of communication today is through Facebook, with billions of users on its platform. Facebook is an extremely convenient way to connect all of your online communication and most of your digital content consumption. And yet, with it are issues about its power and influence privacy and security issues, and the sharing of our data with marketers and corporations. And yet, we're not willing to give up our cars, the drugs that we like to use, Facebook, because it is convenient for us. A convenient truth is what this generation is looking for, not a truth that requires sacrifice. But the spiritual implication is that if we believe the Bible to be true, and we believe that all it has to say about how we are to live our lives is true and for our best. Why then do we not do those things? Because those truths are not convenient truths. Those truths are inconvenient for us. You see, biblical truth needs to be applied in our lives, even if it's not very convenient. 
And if it requires change, do we do it or not? For many, we simply ignore it and live lives completely opposite of what the Bible says because biblical truth is inconvenient, not convenient. But understand, my friends, that if there is a truth and its implications are hard for you to accept, you have a choice to apply that truth or not, however inconvenient it is for us. But I pray you will choose to apply that truth because it is truth, and by virtue of it being truth, it is good for us. If the truth applied requires you to do away with certain conveniences and instead sacrifice, are you willing to do it? Like if the Lord convicts you through the reading of Scripture that you need to give up a hobby, to give up your car because it has become an idol in your life, or perhaps to give up your pursuit of a higher salary or a promotion in order to do what is right, are you willing to do it? We often don't think of truth applied on a scale of how much impact it makes on our life. But Jesus is asking us to do the very same thing He asked the rich young ruler to do, which is to assess how biblical truths affect and impact our lives, and are we willing to make the sacrifice? Remember what He says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23? Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. My friends, the price of discipleship applied in our lives is very costly. The cost of following Jesus is high. The sacrificial cost of living according to the Bible is difficult and hard. But are you willing to apply truth when it is not convenient for you in your life? I hope so. Now I read from Matthew chapter 19, verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Sadly, when the rich young man heard what Jesus asked him to do, he walked away because it was too much for him. He could not live out the greatest of commandments and realize he was not willing to give up his present life to trust Jesus and follow Him because the cost was simply too high. The Bible tells us that this rich young man thought he had too much at stake to lose, at least in his own mind, because he was very rich and had great possessions. You know, when I think about this young man walking away from what Jesus was proposing, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26 come to mind. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 to 26 reads this, Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I point your attention again to verse 26, and again those words. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This rich young ruler was unwilling to give up his treasures on earth to follow Jesus, and in the process, he lost the chance at the assurance of eternal life. I'm sure it was a very difficult decision for him, a hard decision, 
because the Bible tells us he went away sorrowful. He was torn up inside, but torn up inside or not, the truth of what Jesus said still held true, and he had to make a decision, however difficult it was. In the same account as described by the gospel writer Mark, we're told that when Jesus asked this young man to follow him, it was said lovingly because Jesus loved him. Jesus' answer of how this man could have eternal life was one based on truth and love. But just because Jesus deeply loved him and knew of his inner struggle, he didn't run after this rich young ruler to somehow change the truth to soften the requirement. Jesus must have been full of sorrow as well, watching this young man walk away, making the wrong decision in the application of truth. But truth is truth, and truth unapplied does not cease to be true. And this is our fourth principle in the application of truth, number four. Truth unapplied does not cease to be truth. Truth unapplied does not cease to be truth. This young man didn't try to argue with Jesus to change the negotiation to make it easier for him to obtain eternal life and have the assurance of eternal life. I believe he realized that what Jesus said was true. But just because you don't apply the truth in your life doesn't negate its validity. Meaning just because you don't apply it in your life or trust it doesn't mean it stops being true. That's why he walked away sorrowful. He knew what was right. He knew what needed to be done. He was simply unwilling to do it because there was for him so much at stake. We see this in real life play out. Just because you choose not to eat something healthy like fruits and vegetables doesn't mean it loses its nutritional value. Fruits and vegetables are still good for you. You just have chosen not to eat it. On the spiritual side, just because you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior doesn't mean others who do so will not be saved. Placing your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior will give you salvation and eternal life. You who have rejected Jesus have simply made a decision not to believe and therefore do not have salvation. Again, truth unapplied does not cease to be truth. One simply does not receive the benefit of that truth applied. Again, the point is whether you believe in the truth or not does not affect the truth. It only affects you. But a lot of people don't like this reality and resort to what are called logical fallacies to focus the truth-applied subject away from them and to point it to others. For example, let's use our spiritual example of placing our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior as the only means to salvation and note a few logical fallacy techniques. First, the logical fallacy of ad hominem. And this occurs when someone attacks directly the person making an argument rather than criticizing the argument itself. For example, yes, you may be right about salvation through Jesus alone, but I disagree with you because you're ugly and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Of course, Jesus' birthplace and my ugliness have no bearing on the truth argument. Or the logical fallacy of the straw man, when someone attacks a distorted version of the original argument that they themselves have created, the so-called straw man. And so they'll say something like, Jesus didn't really say all have to believe Him to be saved. He is God. He can save everyone if He wanted. That is creating a straw man. 
or the logical fallacy of the appeal to authority, asserting that something must be truth because it is backed up by someone who is allegedly an authority on the subject. So someone will say, believing in Jesus isn't the only way to gain eternal life because Pastor John Doe says there are other ways to heaven. But what does the Bible say? Or then there is the logical fallacy of the bandwagon. The bandwagon fallacy occurs when something is said to be true or good simply because it is popular. So the world will say, I don't believe that eternal life is only through Jesus because the majority of the world doesn't believe this. But again, what does the Bible say? There is the logical fallacy of what we call the hasty generalization. This logical fallacy happens when a general conclusion is drawn based on a sample size that is really small. So someone will say, well, two of my uncles were really nice people, and they did a lot for the community, and they didn't believe in Jesus, but they said they were going to heaven because they were so good. So I think it's true. Again, what does the Bible say? And then there's the logical fallacy of the red herring. This occurs when someone deliberately attempts to move the issue under discussion to a new, irrelevant topic. They'll say, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven because you Christians started the terrible crusades and the knights murdered innocent people. Or I know Jane Doe who claims she is a Christian and she owes me money and she's never paid me back. And that's why I don't believe in your Jesus. And there are other logical fallacy arguments. But again, what does the Bible say? You see, whatever logical fallacy argument you use to justify why you don't believe that eternal life is only through Jesus Christ, it doesn't cease to be true. It only affects you because truth unapplied does not cease to be truth. My friends, in the search for truth, the first part is to wisely discern the truth, and the second part is to apply it properly in your lives. And in the application of truth, remember, clearly define terms and concepts in order to apply truth correctly. Truth wrongly applied, however sincere, is truth unapplied. The application of truth may require hard and difficult sacrifices. And truth unapplied does not cease to be truth. It is you who lose out on its benefits. You see, my friends, in the application of truth, it all boils down to acceptance or the rejection of truth. The acceptance of truth, however difficult, is for your benefit. The rejection of truth, perhaps for convenience sake, is to your detriment. Jesus' own words in John chapter 10, verse 10, to each one of us says this, I have come that you may have life that you may have it more abundantly. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins, but we have to appropriate it into our lives by believing in Jesus. So you have a choice today to make, to accept or to reject the truth of the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And my friends, I hope and pray you will accept Jesus today if you have already not done so. And if you've already done so, then to live out the truths of the Scripture for a life of abundance and blessings. May God bless each and every one of us as we learn to apply truth, specifically biblical truths, in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for showing us what is truth. 
and the need to apply it in our lives. So often, Lord, we find it difficult because truth applied is so inconvenient. Help us to be willing to make the sacrifices needed so that we can enjoy the benefits of truth applied in our life. Father, help us to love truth because You are a God of holiness and of truth. Help us to look to the Scriptures to always find truth for how we are to live our lives, to counteract and to push back against the lies of the world. May You give us wisdom and discernment. May You give us the fortitude and the desire to apply truth in our lives. We pray that You would bless all those who have listened to this message. May they apply truth in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.